You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kinway, Hefe, Zuman, Matthew the Navigator, the Pirate Nopales, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off last time, Zyman Danziker was relaxing in Marseille with his wife and son alongside his pardon from King Henry IV of France. Sir Francis Verney was in Algiers, serving as a sort of replacement to Danziker. We followed his story as it turned to sorrow and his eventual death in 1615. Most of the rest of the pirates, including John Ward, Bill Graves, Richard Bishop, John Easton, and William Saxbridge, well, they were all headed west through the Strait of Gibraltar toward the main Atlantic port of North Africa, in Morocco. We're going to let Danziker spend some quality time with his family for a while, while he still could. For now, we're going to focus on that group headed for Morocco. More specifically, we're going to focus on two pirates who have yet to be introduced. They've been around this whole time, operating in Simon Dansker's fleet. Their names were Yvonne de Vinboer and Jan Jansson. Their biographies could begin almost verbatim in the same fashion as John Ward or Simon Dansker or, you know, Peter Easton or almost anybody in this story. They were Dutch sailors who served as privateers in the Dutch Revolt. And then, when hostilities ended due to the ceasefire, they traveled to Barbary where they could continue work as privateers, even though they were now labeled as pirates. That's why I love Sir Francis Verney's story. It's so different from everything else we have. One of these new characters, Yan Yansun, wasn't a captain when he came to Barbary. Ward and Verney and Danziker and Veen Boer were all captains of privateer vessels, but not Yansun. He was a crew member, a pilot and steerer, on board Veen Boer's ship. It was as a pirate, as a Barbary corsair, that he rose through the ranks to finally become a captain and own his own ship. But again, none of that is particularly interesting or unique. There were dozens of other pirates who had stories just like that. But then we don't remember most of their names, and we do remember the name of Jan Jansson, because his story is a lot more interesting. And it's interesting to me mostly because of how pertinent it is to our overall story of pirates and piracy. This is episode 98, Immortal Super Pirate. And we actually remember Yan Yansun by a few other names as well. In a lot of older English documents, they will anglicize his name to John Johnson, but that's pretty par for the course. But Yansun took a new name during his time in Barbary. 
Murat Rais. As did so many of his fellows, he converted to Islam at some point during his tenure in Algiers, but it appears that he actually continued to use his birth name more than Murat Rais, but everyone who converted to Islam took a new name, and he chose Murat, which was an exceedingly popular name. It's derived from the Arabic name Murad in Turkish. Now, we already know that Rais is the Turkish equivalent of the rank of sea captain, or maybe beyond that to admiral. And Murad, or Murat, is so common, well, there have been five different Ottoman sultans named Murad. But more than that, we've already talked about one particularly high-profile sea commander named Murat Rais as well. Now, he's often called Murat Rais the Elder, to distinguish him from Yansun, or Murat Rais the Younger. Murat Rais the Elder was one of Hereddin Barbarossa's primary successors, and he, the Elder I mean, he had a very long career. He was a captain at the Battle of Privesa all the way back in 1535. He operated throughout those years, and then finally, on the sidelines of the conquest of Cyprus in 1570, and the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. That's 33 years at sea right there. And if he was already a captain at Privesa, we can assume that he was at least, what, 25, maybe? That means that at Lepanto, in 1571, he would have been nearing 60. And we're still a few decades away from Murat Rais the Younger. Nonetheless, there are still tons of older historians that just kind of cram Murat Rais the Elder and Younger into one pirate, they take the deeds of at least two different corsairs and combine them into one, well, he would have had to have been very old pirate. And I say that there were at least two, because some modern historians think that there were probably more than two Barbary pirates named Morat Rais. As in, the pirate at Privesa, in the earlier half of the 1500s, was a different captain with a coincidental name, from the corsair who would follow in Barbarossa's footsteps, and both of them were separate from Jan Jansson. And some even think that there was another pirate named Morat Rais who was active in the Mediterranean in the 1630s. So they're generally separated into Morat Rais, the Elder, and the Younger, but it might be, in fact, as many as four pirates. And that honestly makes a lot of sense. I mean, just look at the Wikipedia page for Morat Rais, the Elder. It starts off in Privesa, and then there's a bunch of other stuff for the next 70 years or so, and then it concludes with his death after a battle with the Knights of Malta in 1638. And that just doesn't add up at all. Privesa happened in 1538, so that's 100 years later. But you see a lot of these older historians writing in the 18th and 19th centuries mostly, and one work I've got from 1932 that expects you to accept that there was this, what, 130-year-old Muslim corsair terrorizing the waves? But, you know, he only popped up every couple of decades, but it was all the same person. I assume that they believed this was some sort of immortal super-pirate who would go to sea, kill and ravage for a few years, and then slink back to his lair where he fed on the fears of innocent children until he was strong enough to emerge once again. And he would always take the form of your greatest fear, even though usually that just means he was dressed up like a clown, but you know, like a really spooky clown. 
But in reality, there was probably more of sort of a Dread Pirate Roberts thing happening here. You know, one pirate realizing that it was the name that inspired the necessary fear. But all that aside, we're going to refer to Murat Rais the Younger as Jan Jansun to avoid any confusion here. He was verifiably taking part in the battle at Algiers, the battle in the harbor that broke the Spanish blockade. He was on board the ship of Ivan de Vinboer as a pilot, and Vinboer was kind of a commodore under Zyman Danziker. You know, if Dali Rais was the admiral of the Algerian fleet, then Vinboer would have been a sub-commander under him with his own unit of maybe a dozen or more ships. But after the blockade was broken and the pirates all left Algiers, that Algerian pirate fleet sort of fragmented. The basis for their naval structure, the government of Algiers, was not a part of their lives anymore. So they separated into their smaller units under each of a few top commanders. The devil captain, Zyman Danziker, was the biggest and most prominent of these, but there was also, most notably, Grote Piet and Ivan de Vinboer. They were his number two lieutenants, you might say. And then, when Zyman Danziker turned around to arrange his pardon, return to Algiers, betray the Pasha, and escape to France, most of his fleet didn't go with him. They stayed with either Grote Piet or most of them with Ivan de Vinboer and nearly all of them stayed the course for Morocco. They had the entire fleet of John Ward and his followers, minus Sir Francis Verney, with them, but this was really a Dutch-led coalition. I do wonder if Simon Danziker told the ship captains underneath him what he was planning, or that he did intend to go back to Algiers and attack them violently. I think probably he slipped away. That's not the sort of thing you want to tell your now majority Muslim crew members. But there's also a possibility, as we'll explore in a bit, that the Dutch had received another set of options, a set of options that would change the course of their lives and that Danziker wanted no part of. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But this fragmentation of the fleet is the kind of thing that we are going to see a lot in the world of pirates. I mean, you know, Drake was always the commander, and Morgan was always the commander, but they were really privateers, not exactly pirates. But if you take the Pirate Republic at Nassau, for example, well, you've got Benjamin Hornigold, a fleet commander in the role of someone like Danziker, who had pirates like Blackbeard and Sam Bellamy operating beneath him. But once it grew expedient for those other pirates to branch off into their own smaller fleets, they did so. You see the same thing under Peter Jennings with Charles Vane and Calico Jack. It happened all the time. But right now, we're getting the first glimmers of that element of pirate life, right here, headed out of Algiers. The anarchic, almost libertarian aspect of the pirate hierarchy. The chain of command was important to anybody operating at sea, but for pirates it was only important to a point. You could hitch your wagon to another, stronger, more famous pirate, and if you didn't have the guns or the men or the fame to be a successful pirate, that makes sense. But if you didn't need to, then why would you share the plunder? So all of these pirates, the English and mostly Dutch, made for Morocco. They traversed the strait while avoiding notice all the way to the Atlantic seaport of Sali. Sali, we've mentioned it briefly before, but 
Well, first of all, Sali is an anglicized pronunciation of an ancient name. It's one of those settlements that's been occupied by dozens of different empires all throughout the ancient world at one point or another. The name probably comes from the Phoenicians, or really the Carthaginians, that called it Shalat. But even they didn't found the city. It had been occupied since prehistory. But of course, the Romans conquered Africa and took over the settlement, and they called it Sala. And Sala remained an insignificant seaport on the edge of the world for several centuries. The Visigothic invaders, for example, never paid much mind to the city. There is a little bit of archaeological evidence of trade with the Visigoths, and later with the Byzantines, but there was no expansionistic building during the Roman or post-Roman period. At least, not until an Islamic caliphate arose and arrived at the edge of North Africa. Once they expanded all the way to the Atlantic and up into Spain, they occupied Sala. But even for them, an Atlantic seaport still wasn't really a priority. Until about the 11th century, when that caliphate who occupied it fell, and different factions in the region all went to war for control. Then, all of a sudden, a seaport that could reach Spain and was outside of the channel suddenly seemed like a very, very good thing to have. So the people who were in control of Salah seriously improved the defenses. The inland capital of Morocco, at this time and for some time to come, was the city of Fez. From Fez, the Borgreg River meets the Atlantic Ocean. Now the Sultan, the Moroccan king at the time, built what was essentially an entire new port and fortress on the northern bank of the river. Now the city on the southern bank they called Chala, but he named the city on the northern bank Sala, much like the Romans had. In practice, this new city was really just a massive fortress with an exquisitely well-protected dock that guarded the approach to the capital. Anybody who wanted to come downriver to the Atlantic or travel upriver to Fez would have to pass by this exquisitely protected fortress. But as far as everyday civic use was concerned, it really didn't serve a whole lot of purpose. Most of the people still lived on the southern bank of the river. You know, they had their homes and their farms and their trading routes already built there, so there's not a lot of incentive for them to cross the river and start a new life. And because all of the people still lived on the southern bank, nearly all the maritime traffic coming through the mouth of the Borgreg River went through the city on the southern bank. So the sultan had to build another fortress, and this one he named after the Arabic word for fortress, Rabat. Today, Rabat is the modern capital of Morocco, but the northern fortification, Salah, just kind of sat empty. I mean, the ruler would certainly order the fortification manned and occupied in a time of war, but that didn't serve much purpose when they did not yet know they were at war. So whenever somebody decided to attack these two cities, that northern fortress was always the first target. Time and again, enemies would sail in and occupy Salah on the north bank. They would man the guns and guard that harbor, and immediately grab a deeply important strategic position that controlled all of the river traffic to and from the capital. It happened in that first war, after the second fortification at Rabat was built. When another major Islamic caliphate rose to power, they used Salah as an inroad to the capital of Morocco. The Castilians would do the same thing a couple of centuries later, and then 
During the Reconquista, the Muslim princes of Cordoba, who were pushed out of Spain down to Morocco, used that same tactic. And that's, you know, that's a lot of history right there, so in hindsight, you'd think the pattern would become pretty obvious. You'd think someone along the line would realize that maybe they should man the guns up there on the north bank. But no one did. It was expensive and seemed, most of the time, unnecessary to do so. So whenever it really mattered, the fortress was usually just empty. And it should have mattered right now. Right as these pirates were on their way to occupy this fortress, Morocco was currently embroiled in a civil war. The king of Morocco, the probably rightful king of Morocco, was a man named Zidane, and he had been pushed south by two different rebel factions. One of them, the more important of the two, at least to our story, was a Sufi mystic named Ahmed Ibn Abi Mahali, and he was, well, he was deeply anti-Spanish and had a lot of popular support because of it. You know, King Zidane would occasionally take a conciliatory tone towards Spain, he used the war between Spain and England and the Netherlands to take back a lot of his territory, but when Spain noticed what he had done, he tried to soothe the wounds. Ahmed ibn Abi Mahali certainly had no need to soothe any wounds. His rhetoric was deeply anti-Spanish, and the people loved him for it. And currently, this Sufi mystic controlled Fez, Rabat, and Salih. As far as Morocco was concerned, and even today still is, that's the most important and kind of central corridor to the country. Ignoring the coastal settlements, that's where the people lived. But of course, as usual, because he felt secure, the fortress at Salih sat empty. Now, do you remember a man named Samuel Palash? We talked about him a long time ago. He was a Sephardi Jew with familial ties to Spain. His family was from Spain, but they had been kicked out when Spain kicked all the Jews out. But he was born and raised in Fez, the capital of Morocco, and he grew up as a smuggler and pirate. But he moved on to be a diplomat and spy. I really like Samuel Palash. He was awesome. When I think about him, I think about a Jewish pirate Zorro. And when we talked about him, it was so long ago because I intended to get to this bit of story a lot sooner. But all this time that we've been talking about other topics, about Ward and Danziker and the events in the Mediterranean and the Rainieri Sodorina and the Charity and the Pearl and all of that, all that time, Samuel Palash has been busy in the Netherlands. When Palash was operating as a spy in Madrid, his primary conspirator was a Spanish viceroy in Morocco. But eventually he saw the light and went to the Inquisition and confessed everything. The Inquisition came after Palash, and he escaped with them at his heels, but he made his way to the Netherlands. And he'd been working there ever since to craft an alliance between the King of Morocco, Zidane, and the Prince of Orange in the Netherlands. Now that's really only been a couple of years, but the Prince of Orange, he was the son and heir of William the Silent, who was the founder of the House of Orange Nassau. They are, perhaps, one of the four or five most important dynasties in our story, right up there with the Habsburgs and the Bourbons and the Stuarts. The Netherlands didn't have a king, but if they did, it would have been whoever came from the House of Orange-Nassau. In this case, the son of William the Silent, Philip William of Orange. 
Both he and the king, Zidane of Morocco, well, they were open to an alliance. They saw a lot to be gained there, but there were a number of serious roadblocks in the way to that alliance, most notably Spain. You know, the Eighty Years' War was on hold, but it wasn't exactly over. Spain had sort of de facto allowed the Netherlands her independence, but it was sort of understood that they were saying, all right, you can have your cute little council for now, but you should know that once we train up a new generation of young men to fight, we're going to take the country back. And everyone in the Netherlands knew this was coming. They knew when war came again, they would need all the friends they could get. They had sort of an alliance with France, which was great, and England was basically the same, and as it happens, all three would fight together in the war to come, but as an ally, with Morocco so close to Spain, on the other side of Spain, they would prove to be invaluable. If you could bring them into your fold, that would be a real coup. It would force Spain to divide her attention. She couldn't just look to the north and to the east, she'd have to keep fleets down south as well. And it was a pretty sweet deal for the King of Morocco as well. The Netherlands, and England as it happened, both offered to help the king win his current civil war to take his throne back. And they also said that once that was won, and his country was no longer embroiled in civil war, they would help force Spain out of Morocco. So that all sounds pretty great for everybody involved, which is why everybody was interested. But for King Zidane, it was a dangerous proposition. See, if he were to allow this alliance to happen, he would be in great danger. The benefits were huge, but he might not live to see those benefits. He had enemies from within already, and should this alliance become known to the king of Spain, they would certainly send fleets and armies to destroy Morocco, and in that situation, the Netherlands looked really far away. So if this was to happen, the king of Spain couldn't know. So, mediating between King Zidane and the Prince of Nassau, Palash had to address these two problems. First of all, the enemies within. Imagine if, hypothetically, the Netherlands could somehow secure many more men for the current war, many more ships for the current war, many more guns for the current war, and aid the king in winning a great victory against his rivals, enough to rally the people to him for a change. But then the second problem, Spain. If the Netherlands did that, it would have to be kept quiet. Spain couldn't know what was happening here. Now, I'd like to say ahead of time, this is my theory based solely on circumstantial evidence, and more than that, really just me really wanting it to be true because it would be so cool, but what if Samuel Palash orchestrated just that? Men, ships, guns, and a singularly important victory, all while keeping it quiet from Spain. What if he used his contacts within the underground there in Europe, and he certainly had many from his years as a smuggler and a spy, what if he used them to contact agents in the employ of the Barbary pirates? We know that Ward and Danziker had quite a way of learning what was happening in Europe before anyone else should have. We know they had agents there. What if Samuel Palash knew how to contact them, or knew men who knew how at least? What if those agents got word to the pirates that they were needed in Morocco? Not only were they needed, the benefits were huge. First of all, it would be an easy victory. Taking the fortress of Salih was a joke. It was empty. 
and then there were guns and powder and plenty of stores for them to use. They could occupy the fortress in a day, before anyone knew what was happening, and then defend it from the pathetic excuse of a navy that Rabat had to offer. You know, that alone is significantly better than the deal any of them had in Algiers or in Tunis or anywhere else in Barbary. Rather than splitting the cost of operations with some leader in their city, they could keep it all for themselves. Plus, it would be an easily defended port, exactly what they needed. They could hold out against anything but an entire Spanish armada combined with a Spanish army, and the Spanish were unlikely to commit those resources to oust them from a port that nobody cared about. It offered them access to the lucrative Moroccan shipping that was coming down from the capital. That's good. It certainly would have been better than what was coming out of Venice, for example, at the time. But more than that, it offered them access to the lucrative Spanish and Portuguese treasure galleons returning home. Even if Samuel Palash and the Dutch Republic had nothing at all to do with the pirates' decision to do just what they did, those were still very good reasons to do it. Barbary was growing uncomfortable, and the Mediterranean was far less lucrative than it had been. Trade still existed there, but it was nowhere near as rich as that which was sailing into Spain and Portugal every day. Oh, look, Venice is sending another galley of wheat to France, yay. And the slaves in the Mediterranean were lucrative, but the cargo wasn't. Compare that to the cargo returning from Asia or the Americas. Indigo, sugar, spices, jewels, precious stones, silver, and gold. Those were hard to come by in the Mediterranean. That alone was reason enough to move to an Atlantic port. But I really enjoy playing with the idea that there may have been deeper political motivations here. What they did did hinder shipping for the Sufi rebels. It did aid the Sultan of Morocco against his enemies quite a bit. But there's no evidence to suggest that any of that is true, to suggest that Samuel Palash did contact the Barbary pirates. And honestly, why would there be? It would have been a clandestine message sent between human beings, not a written letter. But that's the sort of drama I love. But while we don't have much in the way of official documentation here, there are a few pieces of the puzzle that suggest there might be something to what I'm saying. Sultan Zidane had armies, but virtually no fleet. The Sufi rebel, Ahmed, who was in control of Rabat, Fez, and Salih, he had had a fleet at one time, but Spain destroyed it in a devastating series of attacks. The lack of a fleet there in Rabat would have made taking the fortress easy. The pirates could have sailed in boldly and taken Salih, and that was in their own interest. But it was also in the interest of Sultan Zidane, and thus it would have been in the interest of Samuel Palash, who was trying to create an alliance there. So you know, qui bono, who benefits here? But then look at the parties that it would have hindered very, very much. Ahmed, the Sufi rebel, who controlled Fez and Rabat, would have been hurt by this move significantly. And then, with the pirates operating out of Salih to attack Spanish and Portuguese shipping, the king of Spain. But there aren't really any records of how the capture of Salih occurred. You know, were there perhaps some people there defending the battlements? We don't know. Was there a bombardment? Maybe, but probably not. It's more likely that Salih was, as usually, virtually abandoned. Maybe a skeleton force. But the pirates probably just sailed in and took over in a quiet, bloodless, quick attack. All this lack of evidence proves to be a major problem in trying to tell this story. 
You know, I would love to fill in the gaps with dramatic tales of pirates meeting on board, planning their moves, and then inside the fortress celebrating. I could tell you that it was a dark night, a thunderstorm was beating upon the roof, and candlelight flickered over their nefarious visages. And if we were making a movie of this event, I would definitely do that. But as we know, most pirates, and these pirates especially, really didn't keep records. That leaves us at the mercy of independent chroniclers and government records. And there weren't very many independent chroniclers available here. The agents that were usually operating in Barbary, working for Venice or France or England or the Netherlands or Spain or whoever, well, they weren't in Morocco. They were still in Barbary, seeing what was going on in the important region of North Africa. And Morocco, it was an anarchy. There were at least three major factions fighting for the throne, and virtually everyone was a warlord with an army at his back who had hitched his wagon to one or another of those factions. Trade and commerce had come to a standstill due to the war, and it allowed the pirates to take a fortress with virtually nobody noticing. That's the kind of environment that's perfect for a group of lawless men who want to set up shop out of which they can attack Spain and Portugal, but it's not great when you're trying to tell their story with as much historical accuracy as possible. What we do know from government records around the time, and there are a few, is that around this time a large number of Dutch and English corsairs under Ivan de Boer, they arrived in Sali to set up shop. We know this from two sources. First come from the government records of the Kingdom of Spain. About this time, Spain was preparing for yet another ethnic cleansing. They were planning to round up and kick out a bunch of moriscos. We've called them previously conversos on this show. The moriscos, or conversos, were descendants of former Muslims who had converted to Catholicism. Now, these moriscos were themselves Catholic, at least on the surface, but the... Inquisition and the Spanish government never saw them as anything else but Muslims in hiding. And there was a big plan in the works to take their land and their property and all of their possessions and kick them out to the winds. But before Spain was able to do that, a large number of them from the more remote parts of western Spain packed up all of their goods and left. That meant that they got to keep all of their money and all of their possessions instead of letting Spain steal it. And then they chartered ships, or at least took ships, out of the harbors of Spain to sail south and landed in Sali, right in the clutches of the pirates. For a bunch of rural Spanish moriscos, mostly farmers and ranchers, we might expect the pirates in Sali to be a terrifying shock, you know, you might picture the pirates licking their bloody knives and preparing to do terrible things to these poor conversos, but it appears that they were greeted amicably by the pirates. And it even looks like the Moriscos may have chosen to go there. It's even possible that some of them had already made their way to Sali before any of the pirates arrived. So imagine this. Imagine a certain Sephardi Jewish former spy who had operated in Spain who wanted to further damage Spain and help out the embattled king of his home country, all the while trying to build a relationship between his king and the Netherlands. Imagine what he might do if he found out about this plan from the king of Spain to kick out all of these moriscos. Maybe he was able to get word to those moriscos. 
He certainly had the contacts in Spain to do so, and he would have perhaps chartered them passage to a fortress where he had very recently encouraged a bunch of Dutch pirates to sail. He knew that these pirates were there, and he told these Moriscos, in this imaginary hypothetical, that there would be a group of European Muslims who would welcome them in with open arms, with the strength and the power and the guns and the men in the ships, to protect them from Spain, to allow them to start a new life where they would no longer be persecuted. It makes some sense. The Moriscos, who would likely have gone to Morocco, didn't speak any Turkish or Arabic or native Berber. You know, they spoke Spanish. They didn't know that much about Moroccan culture. Even if they were Muslims, secretly, Morocco was a foreign country. They knew about rural Spanish culture, so they would have probably been more comfortable with the European Muslim corsairs in Salih. And that's where they settled. Thousands of them settled in Salih over the course of a few months shortly after the pirates arrived. And those Moriscos began to build a civic structure in Salih. They elected councils and established markets and built homes. Over the next few years, they began settling down and having children and occasionally marrying pirates. You know, and this is the long game we're talking about, more than a decade of development, but the interesting thing about the way that these Morisco exiles and the pirates interacted, well, it's mostly through their economy and their flags. The agricultural life in Morocco was difficult. The civil war was not even close to ending, so moving out to the countryside to start a farm was not a good option. Bandits and roving bands of rebel factions were likely to kill you and take your food. Staying inside a fortress guarded by hundreds of pirates seemed like a much better idea. So they would have been able to grow enough food to sustain themselves, but no cash crops for sale. There were no figs or hashish, there was no wine they were making or olive oil. But soon, the docks of Salih became home to one of the busiest and most profitable marketplaces along the Atlantic coast. So what was it they were trading, these Morisco exiles? Well, the pirates were still the backbone of Salih. Most notably, Ivan de Vinboer and his lieutenant, who had now raised himself up to the level of captain, Jan Jansson. In a lot of ways, Ivan de Vinboer was sort of the unofficial leader of Salih. Naturally, these religious exiles were trading in goods brought in by the pirates. They were fences who were selling these goods to, you know, whomever was unscrupulous enough to buy them. And those were usually less than legal merchants from England and the Netherlands, as well as Barbary and, to a lesser extent, France. So why were they sailing to Salih to buy goods? Well, the things that were available there were extraordinarily valuable and hard to come by. Sugar, spices, indigo, silver, fruit, whatever the bounty of the Spanish and Portuguese colonial empires was, that was traded in Salih. And you might be able to buy some of that in Spain, but they were unwilling, usually, to trade with these Protestant merchants. And if they would, the prices would be extraordinarily high. They were much more reasonable when they were stolen goods. So we can look at this as the time that England and the Netherlands, who were just a few years away from making their first inroads into the Spanish and Portuguese empires in the East Indies and the West Indies, 
this was when they were really getting their first taste of the fruits of empire. France was in much the same position. As for Barbary, on the other hand, they were buying goods that they were going to take back home to the Ottoman Empire to trade. Now those nations, England, the Dutch Republic, the Ottoman Empire, and France, they were all going to be allies very soon in a cataclysmic war against Catholic Europe. They would all be on the same side in the Thirty Years' War, more or less. Now this might just be coincidence. They may have been friendly nations with a similar outlook on Catholic Habsburg Europe, but it's telling here that none of them ever attacked Salih. If this were a city full of rotten pirates, then why not attack it? Well, it would be... I mean, what's the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? And these pirates were focusing on the Spanish and Portuguese, their enemies. And England would go on to attack some other pirate havens in just a few years. They would attack Algiers with a serious force and destroy the corsairs that were left there but not Sally. The Dutch, they were too busy expanding out into the world, but they had ample opportunity to take Sally, and they never did so, nor did the French or the Ottomans. And then, well, before that, let's look at the flags. Most of the corsairs sailing out of Sally flew the flag of Sally. It was a green banner with a two-bladed scimitar, that's an ancient Islamic symbol that's actually evocative of Barbarossa's own banner. But the pirates in particular started sailing with a naval banner underneath, a red triangle, and that became known as the Sali Rouge, or the Red Banner of Sali. And that flag, which occasionally had a crescent moon on it to represent Islam, became iconic. The Sali Rouge was the color of the Sali Rovers. It became the pirate flag. It was recognized as the most piratical symbol in the world. And we usually picture black as the traditional color of the Jolly Roger, but red was almost as common all throughout the eras of piracy. If the Jolly Roger was intended to instill fear, red was the color of blood after all. Henry Avery famously flew a red standard, and that's what we based our logo on here on the Pirate History Podcast. One of the very few surviving actual skull and crossbones flags that was used in piracy is a red flag. And that's a tradition that we can trace back to these pirates, to these Sally Rovers and the Sally Rouge. But two of them had another tradition— Vin Boer and Jan Jansson both flew the Sali Rouge when out at sea. But, whenever they were moving in to attack a Spanish vessel, they took down the Sali Rouge and raised the Dutch flag, which is a bold and not at all subtle message. You know, the triangle in red, the Sali Rouge, that was a symbol that said, I am a pirate and I am here to destroy you and steal your goods. But when they raised that Dutch flag, it was telling the Spanish something else. It was telling them that for these men, the war that these one-time privateers had been fighting against Spain, well, it was far from over. Now, you might ask, if they weren't attacking the Spanish, did they fly the Sali Rouge? Would they fly the Red Standard when attacking English or French or even Dutch ships? The answer is no, they didn't, because they didn't fly any flag when attacking those ships because they didn't attack those ships. 
And keep in mind that these pirates had had no compunction in attacking French or English vessels in the Mediterranean, when they had been operating for the Pashas and Days of Tunis and Algiers, they would attack whoever they could find. Some of them had problems attacking their home country, but other than that it was open season. But here they stuck mostly to Catholic ships from Spain and Portugal. Now, they were close by, Spanish and Portuguese ships, so they were readily available, but they were really near the strait, and the Strait of Gibraltar would have had traffic from every nation that would have offered prey from anyone they chose to steal from. And at first they did capture a few English or Dutch or French ships, but delegates from those countries, after only a few attacks, were sent down to Sali, and they worked out sort of a deal. The indigo and the sugar and the spices that they captured, all of that was extremely profitable, but all of that paled in comparison to the real product that was on offer at the market in Sali, and that was slaves. They were selling sub-Saharan African slaves, the sort that most of us usually think of when we think about slavery, and those were being sold mostly to Europeans, but there were tons of European slaves being sold to the Ottoman Empire, and that's as it always had been for these Barbary Corsairs. But those delegates from France and England and the Netherlands, well, they negotiated an agreement with the Sali rovers that prevented them from capturing any of their own subjects for slavery. It prevented them from capturing any of their ships for sale or their goods for sale. It limited what the Sally Rovers would attack to the Catholic powers of Europe, which meant almost entirely Spanish and Portuguese. And the Sally Rovers, or really more accurately, the Moriscos who officially met with this delegation, received benefits from these deals. If they could convince the pirates not to attack ships from these nations, which they were willing to do, they would receive financial and military consideration. So those Moriscos grew rich. The Sali rovers grew rich. Everyone in Sali prospered, at the expense, primarily, of the Spanish Empire. So, does any of this story sound familiar to you? You've got a bunch of pirates operating out of a fortified city that they captured from Spain. The city was populated by religious exiles from Spain. The governments of England and the Netherlands and eventually France backed the local government, and those religious exiles acted as fences to sell the pirated goods from Spain all around the world. It sounds quite a bit like Port Royal or Tortuga. All of the great pirate havens of the Caribbean that would come to follow in the next 50 or 60 years. You've got the Huguenots in Tortuga, you've got the Jews and the Protestants in Jamaica, and they operated on much the same principle. Pirates were there to steal from the Spanish and protect those fortress cities, while the religious exiles were there to buy and sell their goods and make everybody very, very rich. But... None of those pirate havens are the most famous pirate haven. That distinction goes to none other than Nassau in the Bahamas. And there's a different distinction that connects Nassau and Sali much more powerfully than any of the others. A few years after the pirates and the Moriscos arrived in Sali, the city found itself under a bunch of pressure from Spain. The Thirty Years' War was close to breaking out, and Sali was a thorn in Spain's side that was inflaming that conflict. 
The other nations that were to be involved, France, England, the Netherlands, they were all hesitant to aid Salih in fear of a premature outbreak of war. So the residents of Salih needed to defend themselves. The former leader of Salih, the unofficial leader, Ivan de Vinboer, well, he'd been retired for a few years now. Coincidentally, he was living alongside Jack Ward in Tunis until Jack Ward died, but he was busy enjoying his wealth. Jan Jansun had taken over his position as the most famous and recognizable pirate in Salih, but he took that a step further. He had himself named the High Admiral of Salih, and made all of the other pirates swear an oath to follow him should war come. But then he took a step further than that. He campaigned for and was elected as the president of the independent Corsair Republic of Salih. In this, they made it official. They were not a part of the Kingdom of Morocco. They were not a part of the Netherlands or England or France or Spain or anyone else. They were an independent pirate republic, which is a story that can't be told about Tortuga or Port Royal. It can really only be told about three places in the entire world. The first happened here at Salih, and the last, barring a few other lesser versions of the story, happened at Nassau in the Pirate Republic of the Bahamas. Now, Yanyan soon took charge of the city and her military dictatorship, and he ruled for about three years and saw the town and the fortress through some pretty serious times with the Spanish. The whole story there is an exciting, swashbuckling tale, but eventually the independent Pirate Republic was going to fall. It was largely internal, Yan Yansun and many of his pirates left the city behind as much as it was an external attack. But that dream, that dream of a pirate republic was a dream that wouldn't disappear for more than a century, a dream of a nation for the pirates and governed by the pirates. But I'm not going to tell that entire story. I wanted to draw these comparisons because they're going to influence how we tell the story moving on, but it's time to move on. We're not going to talk about Salih in any real depth. We're not going to talk about the politics involved in any depth at all. Soon, we're going to move on to the next stage of that dream for an independent pirate republic, and we're going to talk about the second attempt to found a real nation by the pirates and for the pirates. A nation that, well, it's almost mythological called the Nation of Libertalia, and that's coming very, very quickly, about the start of 2019. But before we get on to that, I do want to finish the story of Zyman Danziker, the Devil Captain, and we're going to do just that next time. But then we're going to take a step back so we can take in the larger picture of how the Barbary pirates impacted the entire history of pirates and piracy in the Golden Age. I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and I'd like to apologize for how rushed today's story felt. I almost went into the depth I usually go into about the Pirates of Salih, but I'm not prepared to spend several weeks, perhaps a few months, talking about what was happening there. I'm eager to move on, and right now feels like a very good time to do so. Once the characters about whom we've been talking, well, their stories are all ending. If you do want to learn more about the Pirates of Barbary, 
It's an interesting topic, and you can certainly find out a lot more, and I've got some resources at the website you can find. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support this show as well. Everybody who has given us a shout-out online or in real life. Everybody who has left us a review wherever it is you listen to the show. All of that helps the show get noticed, and I wouldn't be able to do it without you, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.